All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salami of Device Talks here. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We've got a very special episode for you this week. Our keynote guest will be Mark Dickinson. He's worldwide president at Saranovis. We'll talk with Mark about Saranovis's uh, various treatments and products in the uh, neurovascular space. Uh, his uh, somewhat unusual start in the medtech, how he built his career at J&J, and again, what Saranovis is, is working toward in the neurovascular business. We'll also have some messages from TE Connectivity, specifically the medical business unit of TE Connectivity. They're sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. And woven between those, we'll have interviews that I did with Paul Grand, the CEO of MedTech Innovator. I spoke with Paul uh, while I was uh, visiting 160 Studios at the Mullings Group. Uh, I did an on-camera interview with Paul. He was in Dublin. I was in Florida. Uh, the video is available on LinkedIn, so check that out. We'll have uh, the entire, we'll have the, the video broken up into two parts on LinkedIn. I'm going to give you most of the audio of the interview here. We'll talk about uh, what makes a good start startup pitch, and also, of course, talk about the MedTech Innovator All Stars, which is happening at Device Talks Boston on May 10th and 11th. I hope you'll be joining us there. It's going to be a, a great two days. To also talk about, or at least give a bit of a preview for uh, his appearance at Device Talks Boston, is Jeff Alvarez. He is the Chief Strategy Officer at Moon Surgical. Jeff will be on a keynote panel on uh, day two, on May 11th, along with Robert Cohen of Stryker and Justin Barad of Also VR. We'll be talking about the future of digital surgery, so I'm looking forward to that conversation. Jeff and I talked about uh, his career, about his move into Moon Surgical, what Moon Surgical is up to, and uh, where the whole space is headed. So you're going to get a, uh, a little sampler, a little MedTech sampler today. So we'll have a short interview with Paul Grand, short interview with Jeff Alvarez, and then the larger, longer, more traditional Device Talks Weekly interview with Mark Dickinson, again, worldwide president of Saranovis. But before we get this going, I do want to again remind you to register for Device Talks Boston. It's happening on May 10th and 11th at the BCEC. And uh, make sure you go to devicetalks.com to register. And uh, you can use the code DTWEEKLY25 to save 25% off the registration price. Registration is booming. So I hope you'll be there. It's going to be a, a great couple of days. And uh, if when you do register and you do go, Please uh, make sure you say hi. I've got a lot of interviewing going on. It's going to be a busy couple of days, but I'm there to see all of you and would very much love to uh, say hello. Uh, the evening of day one, uh, email me on LinkedIn, reach out on LinkedIn. I can connect you with a, a reception that's going on, a great networking reception that's going on uh, at uh, being put on by our friends at Goodwin. So uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and I'll uh, get you the link for that. And you can register for that. All right. Before we begin this episode, I want to bring in our sponsor, TE Connectivity. Again, this is the medical business unit at TE Connectivity. I spoke with Katie Devon. Katie Devon, who, uh, like Paul Grant, uh, was in Ireland when I talked to her, but she's actually from Ireland. Uh, she's a product manager at uh, TE Connectivity. And uh, we talked about uh, medical metals business at TE Connectivity. So let's, uh, let's bring in Katie Devon of TE Connectivity. 
Katie Devon, thanks for joining us. Tell us about the medical metals business at TE Connectivity. Sure. So TE's metals business unit is built on a legacy of leading and acquired brands, uh, including Craigana Medical, Precision Wire Components, LSA Laser, and Microgroup. These brands combined make up a total of over 50 years of metals processing expertise. And one of our product lines within the metals business unit is all tube. This product line consists of our standard medical grade stainless steel tubing. And when choosing what size is material for your next generation product, we offer fractional and hypodermic gauge tubing. This tubing is also available on our website in metric sizes. And you can view our standard sizes and order online at te.com forward slash medical. Or if you can't find a size of tubing to meet your requirements, we can also resize tubing in-house using our grinding capability to meet your required inner and outer diameter dimensions. Great. We'll hear more from Katie Devon a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more information about TE Medical, go to its website. That's te.com backslash medical. All right, let's get this podcast started with my interview with Paul Grand of the MedTech Innovator. Well, I want to talk about uh, what's going to be happening at Device Talks Boston. You've got your MedTech Innovator All-Stars, and we can go over some of the companies that will be presenting or at least uh, talk, speak to the number. But I didn't prep you for this question, so forgive me. I know you're tired. You just got off stage. But <laughs> you've listened to a lot of pitches, Paul. What, what, in your opinion, what are like the top two or three things you need in a good pitch? What, what really sells a story? So the, the stories, you know, you could go through, you know, the, the typical list uh, of, of what makes a great story. So the story should be A to, you know, it should basically start at the beginning, um, tell you what the, the problem is. It should be, this is the way I like to describe it. Uh, it should be a very continuous flow. Some people try to, you know, change things up and kind of go in lots of different, you know, out of order mm -hmm. and, and you know, tell you a lot about other things and then finally get to the product. We want to start with, you know, what the problem you're solving is, What's the solution that you've come up with? Why is it better than standard of care? How is it ultimately going to get uh, paid for and reimbursed so that it's not just a product that's approved and no one uses um, if it even gets to approval? So you got to, you know, you got to check all those boxes amongst other things. You got to tell us about your team and uh, and, and why you think you're going to be successful. You know, we, we have to have all those things. But what really makes the pitch um, is 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 not any of those things individually. What makes the pitch is somebody who can convince me or convince anybody who's listening of two things, um, any pitch, it doesn't matter what pitch it is. It, it could be literally me describing something to you right now. Um, you should want to do one of two things. Number one, you should go, wow, I wonder if I could write these guys a check. I wonder <laughs> if I can, whether you're an investor or not, can I invest personally in this company somehow, because this is going to be a success. Um, that's number one. And the other thing you, you should be doing is questioning whether or not you should quit your job and go work for that company. Like that's, that is the best pitch. If somebody can accomplish one or even both of those things, have the person on the other side go, Ooh, maybe I should, maybe I should go see if I can work for this company. Maybe I should definitely see if I can write them a check. That was a great pitch. Um, and I always tell people if they haven't achieved one of those two things, the other person thinking that, then it wasn't the best pitch it could be. It's good, good, good standards. So you haven't uh, you haven't quit your medtech innovator job yet, but you've you've been tempted once or twice, I'm guessing. I have definitely been tempted uh, <laughs> by by many companies, you know. And I can tell you, you know, as you know, I was a venture capitalist for 12 years, 
And, and I used to think that, you know, when I first took the job as a VC, I thought like, well, I'll, I'll just find some great company and go jump and go be their CEO after I learned the venture business. Um, but 12 years later, I was still doing it because I really loved seeing everything. I love seeing lots of technology. We started MedTech Innovator while I was a VC and then we spun it out. So I got to see everything. And in my particular case, uh, I think I can contribute a lot more by helping innovators than just joining one particular company. But boy, I, I see a lot of those companies that check that first box that I mentioned before, which is would I write a check to this company? And I have definitely written checks to some of the MedTech Innovator graduates. I haven't yet gone on the record about who those are. Um, I'm keeping that a little bit uh, secret uh, and off some of those cap tables. But uh, but there's definitely a lot of companies that have convinced me to write a check. Wow. All right. I have to go uh, digging through some SEC filings and, and some, some, some paperwork. I don't know. You're going to have to look really hard, Tom. You're going to have to look really hard. We've kept it, we've kept it, uh, we've kept it uh, vague. So uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on at Device Talks Boston on May 10th and 11th. Once again, you've got your MedTech Innovator All-Stars. Last year, you had the, the, the full, um, uh, you had all the judges there. You had the full contest. This year, we're doing something a little different. You've invited some, some past success stories that have gone through the program already to uh, come back and sort of uh, and, and retell their tales. So what were you looking for uh, in the companies that you've uh, invited to participate at uh, Device Talks Boston? What are some of the qualities that they share? Well, these companies are, you 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 coined the term, so I'm, I'm letting you run with that and I'm gonna give you the credit. <laughs> you call them the all-stars and we're gonna stick with that. Uh, and this is the first time we've ever done this before, just so your audience understands. We've featured MedTech Innovator cohort companies each year at multiple conferences and give them lots of visibility. And then they graduate. And while we continue to support them, we've never featured graduates before. Um, we've only featured that year's companies. We've never gone back into the well and said, uh, boy, that's a terrific company. You know, Let's put them in front of a new audience. Um, they're raising capital, et cetera. Uh, and and the, thing that's, the thing that's really been interesting is that MedTech Innovator has, if you look at last year and the year before it, roughly one, one out of four companies uh, in 2021, one out of five companies in 2022 that raised capital were one of our graduates. Uh, our graduates are very successful at raising capital. Again, 20 to 25% of all financings are MedTech Invader graduate in this industry annually. And uh, the thing that we learned in talking to those graduates is that even though they're successful at raising capital, sometimes it takes a while to close that final money. So they'll say, oh, I've gotten my first three million of five and we're looking for that additional two. And they'll go out there for another three to six months looking for that final two million. Uh, and that's a big distraction. And oftentimes people read about them later and they say, oh my God, that company raised five million. I wish I knew they were raising capital. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been thinking for a long time about ways to feature those companies. And the first time we're doing that is at Device Talks on May 10th and 11th, um, that we've gone through, we, we put an application out again. So we went to our alumni and we said, if you're raising capital, we wanna know about it uh, because we're gonna give you an opportunity to be featured uh, at Device Talks. And we had a lot of companies apply uh, for that opportunity. Uh, we knew we were only gonna have room for about 21 of them. Uh, in total, I think we had, we wound up with the 22nd uh, because we we had one more that, that really convinced us they really need to be at Device Talks. So we gave them the opportunity, but we'll have 22 companies out of the ones that applied, which were many more, um, that had to check some boxes, as you said, what were the criteria, 
Um, it wasn't just that they were raising capital. Uh, we wanted to find companies that had made substantial progress since they were in MedTech Innovator. Uh, we wanted to find companies that we believe with the capital they're raising are going to achieve a significant milestone. Um, that's really important. Uh, so that when you go out and you tell that story as part of you were asking before about a great pitch, uh, you got to convince people that the capital you're raising is going to be put to good use. And, uh, and especially in this environment, um, that you're going to have enough staying power to get to a significant milestone. So they had to check those boxes. And the 22 companies that we picked, I believe, do. And so these are, as we've talked about before, uh, when we had MedTech Innovator at last year's program, these are, these are companies. These aren't two people with an idea uh, and a product and a hope and a dream. These are, those were companies last year. So these are companies that have already gone through that process or a similar process of raised even more money on top of that. So these are the companies we're looking at on May 10th and 11th. These are mature companies. They're likely, I'm guessing they're, they're expanding, they're hiring, they're, they're bringing in partners, either manufacturing perhaps or product design. These are legitimately growing med tech companies, the kind of companies we really want to really want to support and foster. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, we chose companies that, uh, again, you know, have made significant progress. They are all, you know, well, I shouldn't say mature. They're, they're at different stages. There sure. are some that are still at the seed stage in terms of the round they're raising. There are companies raising uh, $50 million Series B rounds. Um, there are companies uh, that are everything from still doing uh, their early clinical work uh, all the way up to companies that are on the market um, and are looking for growth capital. So we've got everything in between. Uh, the, the furthest back in the, uh, for a company that we're featuring that has graduated MedTech Innovator was um, Fiberline, who won MedTech Innovator in 2014. So uh, you're talking about way back. Wow. Um, and uh, it's a company that, you know, who's, it's the right time for them and they're raising some capital and we thought they've achieved significant milestones. So they're one of many that we'll be featuring, but we've got them going all the way back that far in terms of graduates. Not like it's just last year's companies. Um, these are companies all the way from 2014 through today. Fantastic. So they'll be presenting over, over those two days. Uh, folks are invited to, to come and, and listen to, to their stories and to obviously meet Paul and, and the MedTech innovator crew. Uh, you guys are adding uh, so much energy to the, uh, to the early investment and in in overall venture investment uh, environment in, in medtech. What's, uh, last question, what's your sort of feeling as to where we are with startup financing and in, in, in the future? You're at an event now, it sounds like there was a lot of energy there. Are you uh, hopeful and optimistic? Oh, I'm super hopeful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, I, no one's going to accuse me of, uh, of, of anything other than uh, being the glass is half full. I'm definitely uh, a half a glass is half full kind of guy. I'm an optimistic person in general. But um, I will tell you that our companies are raising capital almost every day. Um, there's an, a there's a financing that's closing in one of our graduates. Uh, it doesn't hurt that we have 500 graduates. But, uh, and as I said, they, they represent a lot of the financings. Uh, we, see, we see companies closing all the time. Uh, they're closing seed rounds, they're closing series C rounds, um, you know, and everything in between. Uh, they're, they're being acquired. Uh, there's, there's definitely, I'm not gonna, you know, paint a super rosy picture and say, oh, it's so super easy for everybody. It's a hard process. Companies are, you know, still taking six months to a year to close those rounds in some cases but um, they are closing rounds. 
And, um, and a very, very rarely do we have a company that throws in the towel. Um, we've had, uh, since going all the way back 11 years, we've lost less than um, 5% of all the companies that have wow. applied. So we've had 95% of our graduates are either still in business or have been acquired. We have 36 acquisitions to date. Um, and, and again, those companies are raising capital. If, uh, if I just announced MedTech Innovator financings, I'd be doing that every single day of the week, wow. almost. I would. Um, so, so they are raising capital here in Dublin. Um, there's a, a lot of companies presenting. As I said, we had our companies pitching yesterday, um, and uh, and those companies, again, these are as you said, these are not two people with an idea. These are companies that are formed, that have teams, that are achieving milestones. Uh, you know, we really are picking the best of the best. So, um, you know, I'm very optimistic, certainly for our portfolio. Uh, and I'll, and I, I guess what I would say is, um, as an industry, med tech, while it's not recession proof, as I know you've explored on your your podcast many times, um, it is something that everybody needs. Mm-hmm. You know, we need healthcare, um, we need technology to make healthcare better um, and to improve the outcomes for patients. And as long as companies are doing that, they are going to raise capital. Um, as long as they are improving, you know, dealing with things like, st- you know, staffing shortages, you hear that message all the time right now sure. uh, in pitches. Um, and as long as they're doing that, as long as they're achieving these things, they're going to be better than the big companies at solving these problems because they can do it faster, uh, but still with it with still with great safety and with all the things you want. Uh, and ultimately, these products are, are going to get to patients. Uh, we can, you know, I feel very confident about that. So I'm optimistic. And uh, and I remain optimistic. Uh, there's no lack of innovation, as I said, with, with 1,800 companies applying to MedTech Innovator this year. It's very clear there's a lot of people working to solve these challenges. So super optimistic, and uh, and and I remain so. I can I can feel the energy, and I'm optimistic as well. And I'm grateful, Paul, that you're uh, making MedTech Innovator, helping us make MedTech Innovator be part of Device Talks Boston. I really appreciate the, the energy and the great stories you're bringing, and the, and the the, the 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 startups that are really going to be contributing to to medtech's future. So thanks for uh, everything for you, you do, and I really look forward to seeing you back in the states in Boston on uh, on May tenth and eleventh. I can't wait. Uh, uh, I will be there with my team uh, and with uh, twenty two medtech innovator graduates, all stars who uh, will knock your socks off. So <laughs> uh, if you're an investor in the audience, or if you're anybody in the audience who is thinking, should I go to Device Talks? I can promise you it'll be well worth your time to come just for the All-Stars, and it will be certainly worth your time to come to the rest of the conference as well. It's a great conference. Really enjoyed being there last year, which is why we're back. Um, and not just because you and I are friends, which we are, but uh, because it's worth it's worth the time. It's worth going to Boston to Device Talks. Fantastic conference. Uh, and uh, look forward to seeing you May 10th and 11th. Fantastic. Well, folks who, who want to join Paul there and, and myself, you can go to devicetalks.com to register. Uh, you can use the code in honor of our, our 160 Studios host. You can use the code TMG25 to save 25% off the price of registration. And uh, it'll be a great two days, and I uh, really hope to, uh, to see you all there. So, Paul, good luck. Uh, safe travels home, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. See you soon. Uh, it was great to hear from Paul Grant, CEO of the MedTech Innovator. Once again, join us at Device Talks Boston on May 10th and 11th. The MedTech Innovator All-Stars will be presenting on both days. 
great opportunity to meet with some really mature late stage companies that are, are really moving toward changing MedTech's future. So go to devicetalks.com to register. Now I'd like to begin our interview with uh, Jeff Alvarez. Once again, he is the Chief Strategy Officer at Moon Surgical, a very cool surgical robotics company. This is a, a shorter interview. This is Jeff Alvarez's first uh, first time on the podcast. I'd love to have him back sometime where we explore his career a bit more. But uh, I hope you enjoy this quick visit with Jeff Alvarez of Moon Surgical. And make sure you do register to Device Talks Boston and uh, see Jeff in person on the morning of May 11th. Great. Well, I'm here with Jeff Alvarez, the Chief Strategy Officer at Moon Surgical. He's joining me at uh, 160 Studios uh, for a little uh, little surgical robotics discussion. Jeff, thanks for for making some time today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you at uh, at Device Talks Boss. You're going to be on our sort of future of the OR panel where we we'll talk about digital surgery, surgical robotics. You've had some great experience in this space. You were a uh, an early employee, the number one employee at Aura Surgical, which is a story into itself. But you're really going to be sharing the Moon Surgical story, I think, at uh, Device Talks Boston, though I'm sure Aura's will come up. Uh, and I love the Moon Surgical story because it just seems like the next iteration of, of where surgical robotics is headed. But uh, a little bit about yourself first. Uh, did you? How did you enter the surgical robotics space? Were you a robotics person? Were you a surgical sp- person? Just a medical device person? What was your uh, entry into uh, into the space? Yeah, I was originally trained as a mechanical engineer and got started uh, in medical device startups uh, from the get-go, right out of college, um, in, in cardiothoracic instruments. Uh, it, it was lucky enough to actually move on to a company called Heemstra Product Development that did handheld medical instruments and, mm-hmm. and got to work on you know a dozen different devices within within two years. Uh, it, it was an incredible learning experience for for a young engineer and then i um, got hooked up with hansen medical which is where i met uh, fred mole uh-huh. he was the ceo and founder of, of hansen medical uh, and got to to work on some brilliant robotic stuff and um, been doing it ever since and that was that was 2006 when i made that that jump that's great and did you have a sense of of where or in your mind you must have an idea of where surgical robotics was headed here we are doing the math 17 years later uh, how have we, uh, how have things progressed as you anticipated? Uh, no, no, it's always, uh, <laughs> surprising. Um, and I think that's a key to, to that is the market is, is always adjusting and changing, right? We can, you know, in, in 2006, we saw it heading in one direction and I think, uh, where it ended up is substantially different than where we all anticipated. Um, and uh, I think that's a large, uh, a significant factor, I think, in what we're seeing today in the industry. What, uh, let's talk a bit about, uh, about Moon Surgical. Uh, talk a bit about its, its device and what was it about, about it that was appealing to you? I kind of hinted at the top. I feel like it's just a, it's a different take on, on surgical robotics and one that just makes a, a lot of sense. But talk a bit about, uh, about uh, Moon Surgical's approach and how did you become involved? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, um, the early days of Oris were, were, we were originally focused in ophthalmology and we spent a lot of time looking at, uh, cataract surgery and mm-hmm. 99% of cataract surgery is performed in an outpatient setting and in ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, and I knew from, from that experience that, um, a large part of the surgical volume in soft tissue surgery was moving to those environments. Um, and you know, one of the things that really struck me about moon surgical's approach is. 
is the fact that it is a robotics platform that um, can function appropriately in in those environments because they're very different than the typical operating theaters that that a da Vinci type of system uh, would uh, would operate. And and how is it different? Talk a bit about the product and, and what it does. Yeah, um, you know, for one, it's a small um, uh, footprint. So it, the goal is to make sure that there's something that it really is minimally invasive in the operating room. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, today there's there's about um, 800,000 cholecystectomies performed in the United States and uh, over 600,000 of those are performed in outpatient centers. So these are, are, are high volume uh, operating rooms that, that are focused on um, getting patients in the door and the procedure done and out of the door and ready for the next patient fast. And so you need a, a platform that fits into um, that environment, that workflow, um, that allows uh, these facilities to, to use a device without disrupting that volume. Uh, so that's on the facility side. And then there's the surgeon side where you have to really fit into a way of making sure that uh, the surgeon can use your device with their existing practice. And that's what we focused on at Moon is really understanding these um, customer needs, right? How the customer needs to use the device in a way that doesn't disrupt um, their their current surgical technique, their their current practice. Um, and that's what we've we've been able to do. Um, that has has been of great great benefit in what we've seen. And that seems to I wouldn't say it runs counter to how things were done before, but I I always saw surgical robotics companies as sort of saying, look, you. You do things this way. We have this device. We'll help you do things differently. You're going to have to. You're going to use our system to get it done. You're coming at it from a different approach. Like how can we? It sounds as if you're coming at a different approach. How how can we help you do what you do better? You tell us how to help you. Is it a little more con- customer driven? In your in yeah, hundred percent. So you know, spending time with all of the stakeholders uh, involved, both from a facility standpoint, uh, um, a nurse standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, and a surgeon standpoint, understanding what is it that they uh, are trying to do, and then how do we deliver, develop and deliver a platform that allows them to do that in a, you know, more efficient way, um, in a way that makes their lives easier, uh, and the quality of care for the patient better. Uh, And um, that's what that's what we've been focused on. That sounds almost like the uh, development of a medical device, one might say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where, uh, where, uh, we're, we're going to be talking on, at Device Talks Boston uh, about the, the, the future of the OR. We'll have you, we'll have Robert Cohen from Stryker. Uh, we'll have uh, Justin Barad from also VR pre- presenting sort of the virtual reality perspective. There's a lot of different modalities and technologies coming into surgical training and surgical execution. Uh, where do you sort of see this story playing out now that you've had the 17 years of experience uh, and ex- or exposure to this space? Uh, do you have a, a sense of where we might be uh, maybe in the next five years? I don't want to ask you to project or predict the next 17, but next five years, where are we headed? Yeah, it's uh, it's a good question. And, and, you know, just looking back at how we were predicting the future in 2006 <laughs> to where we ended up now, it's, you know, probably going to change, but I, I think the way I see it is, I think we all know that the the healthcare system we have today is is really struggling. Um, you know, there's incredible staff shortages um, uh, in every facility. You know, before the pandemic in in 2019, 
um, the American Hospital Association had it at 190,000 uh, nurses and doctors that were uh, we were short, right? And you can only imagine what the pandemic has done to that with with uh, surgeons and, and nurses mm-hmm. retiring. Um, and so I think it's it's about uh, the technologies that are going to be successful and really change the future are be are ones that enable our providers to do more with with the tools and skills that they they already have right how do we make them more efficient how do we make them more capable how do we make their lives easier and allow them to use their time um you know more efficiently uh, and a great benefit of that is is they're also inherently spending more time with the patient right um so i think i think that's where i see it going um and i think those are going to be the technologies that are are uh, very successful um, in the next uh, ten to twenty years. And, fi- and final question: I don't want you to share your secret playbook, but Chief Strategy Officer, uh, you can say you're, you're you're looking out. Do you see other opportunities where robotics can can fit that role that you're talking about precisely? That do you see a need, a shortage of some kind, that a robotics assistant of some kind can help uh, uh, alleviate the pressure that might come with uh, with a, a, a healthcare shor- a healthcare worker shortage or, or something else. Have you identified other opportunities that a moon surgical like approach might work, or is this sort of a, a one off? Yeah, I think there there are lots of opportunities that we've been able to um, you know uh, see mm-hmm. uh, you know with with platforms like ours and others uh, and. I think what's important uh, in the development of technology is um, making sure that you're 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 staying focused, um, that you're having those regular conversations with your customer, uh, and you're making sure that ultimately what you're developing is is creating the right uh, value for the customer without a lot of friction, without a lot of change, um, and. You know, I think that's how you end up developing a platform that can then be expanded on into these other types of areas. Uh, if you were to look in the uh, in the future in these other opportunities, that's great. Well, it's a it's an interesting time to be in surgical robotics. Clearly, we're seeing a lot of different players creating larger surgical systems, and I'm excited to hear how Moon Surgical is is fitting into all of that, and and how maybe other players can can come and find their own opportunities to uh, to bring robotics technology to help a real problem, which is uh, the healthcare worker shortage, staffing shortage. So uh, Jeff, I'm grateful for you to take the time today, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you at Device Talks Boston uh, on May 10th and 11th. Thanks for joining us. Of course, John. Thanks for having me. All right, it was great to hear from Jeff Alvarez of Moon Surgical. Once again, I recorded these interviews at 160 Studios. That's the studio group affiliated with the Mullings Group. It's also uh, Dragonfly Stories is the name of the group. They they were a fantastic uh, team down there. Great equipment. Check out the videos of these interviews and interviews I did with Holly Scott and Joe Mullings. Those are coming up on uh, on LinkedIn as well. And I'll be posting the audio of some of those interviews in next week's podcast. We talked about a lot of different subjects, but uh, I had a great time down there. It was really, uh, really a special place. So check out those videos and make sure you uh, check out Dragonfly Stories. All right. Before we begin our keynote interview, I want to bring back our podcast episode sponsor, 
TE Connectivity. Once again, I'm speaking with Katie Devin. She is product manager at TE Connectivity. Katie, tell me, what medical devices use medical tubing and where does it fit into product life cycles? Yeah, so this tubing can be used in multiple applications from cardiovascular to endoscopy to robotic surgery, wherever medical grade stainless steel tubing is required. TE's Metals Business Unit Vision is to be the partner of choice to our customers in building medical devices that save lives from prototype to scale. And during the ideation phase of your next generation device, standard tubing can be bought through our online store at te.com forward slash medical with no minimum order quantities. When you're ready then to turn your idea into a next generation medical device, you can work with our engineers at the TE Propellus Prototype Center to help accelerate your time to market. When you're ready to validate your product, we can bring the product through our project gate stages and finally to scale within operations. Our standard tubing can be used during the entire life cycle of the product to reduce lead times and bring your product from prototype to scale. And over the next few months, we're launching a new sample kit of standard tubing of multiple sizes to support engineers at the early stage of the product life cycle. This is another way we're trying to reduce the lengthy product development cycle and accelerate the time to market. All right. And finally, Katie, how can someone order medical tubing from TE Connectivity? Yes, you can order through our online store at te.com forward slash medical. Or if you're looking for a a quote at higher volumes, you can contact one of our sales representatives by calling 1-800-ALL-TUBE or using our web chat function. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks, Katie Devin, for the information about TE Connectivity. Thank you, TE Connectivity's Medical Business Unit, for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, if you want to find out more information about TE Connectivity, go to its website. That's te.com backslash medical, te.com backslash medical. Now let's hear our keynote interview with Mark Dickinson of Saranovis. Well, Mark Dickinson, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. And uh, I'm, I'm eager to learn about Saranovis and uh, and talk about the stroke and, and neurovascular space. It's certainly a, a fast growing and quickly developing area. But as always, I like to find out how our uh, our medtech leaders found their way to where they are. So, uh, what was your uh, your first interest in the medical device industry? So, I have a I think a pretty unusual pathway to get into the medtech industry. Oh, good! I need one of those. <laughs> so, uh, it's a it's a bit of a story, but I'll I'll share it with you. Like, I mean, first of all, my my mum was a an OR nurse, so oh, wow. it kind of always been in the in the family a little bit. But that's not actually how I got into the space at all. I was actually spending a year traveling around the world after I finished university and I was in Australia and I ran out of money. So, <laughs> um, so what do you do? You say, okay, try and find a job to be able to continue the travels. And, you know, I didn't really want to just go home at that point. So I actually found a job working in a hospital in Sydney and my job was to move patients from the ward down to the operating room, you know, so just pushing patients around the hospital and, as part of that, the job is to take them through the anesthetic room, put them onto the operating table, help position the patient for the surgery that they're going to have. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple exercise, but uh, at the time, I got to really experience what it's like to work in an operating room. I got to interact with 
a whole team of people there. So the nursing staff, the, uh, you know, the surgeons as well. But I think part of this story, more importantly, was that I started to work with some of the industry people who were there to support the procedures and teach and train on the devices that the physicians and surgeons were using. I did that for about six months and then saved enough money to continue my travels. But um, as I was leaving, one of the the reps from J&J who was supporting some of the surgeries that I was putting patients on the table for said, hey, look, if, you know, if you're interested in this as a, as a career, when you get back to the UK, give me a call and I'll see if I can make a few contacts for you. And uh, Tom, honestly, it had never been on my radar at That's all. That's crazy. Didn't think about this as a career. But, you know, I went traveling, spent a bit more time abroad. And then when I came back, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give that a give that a shot. I'm going to explore it a little bit. So I called him up. He put me in contact with, uh, was actually our orthopedic team in the UK at the time. They didn't have a role in the city that I wanted to live in as a sales rep. So they put me in touch with our Ethicon franchise. And uh, I went for an interview. And I guess the rest is history. That's amazing. Do, do you think you were drawn to the job at the hospital because of your your mom's uh, experience? I mean, you could have just easily worked at a restaurant. We'd be having an entirely different conversation, maybe. Do you know, I think so. I think it was, there was no real barrier there. There was no sort of, I wasn't, you know, afraid of going to a hospital or, you know, yeah. working in that sort of environment. It was very familiar. So I think so in some way. But yeah, you know, these uh, there's a lot of serendipity here and uh, it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. That's amazing. So you've been at J&J starting at Ethicon, as you mentioned, and worked your way through. I like to understand you're at Biosense Webster for a time. Did you see yourself as someone who would spend their time at the same company for their career? Or did that just sort of just happen? So I, th- I think it just happened. But at the same time, I knew when I was joining J&J that I was lucky enough to be joining one of the best, if not the best, medical device company. So I, I felt at the time I was joining that I was in the right place. And actually, I got some you know, really incredible advice from someone who was an early mentor for me, a guy called Colin Morgan, who used to run the, the Ethicon business and the J&J med tech business in the UK when I started. And he told me, look, this, this company is, is such a great company to work for. If you're loyal to it, it'll provide you with countless opportunities. And it's up to you to decide which of those opportunities you want to take. And you know, and he kind of opened my eyes really to sort of, even though I was just starting within his organization, that there was a much broader organization out there that could provide you with, you know, interest, excitement, opportunity. And uh, he just said, look, it's up to you to view whether you want to embrace it or not. So I took the decision to embrace it. And it's been an amazing 24 years in J&J and no regrets whatsoever. It's a, it's a fantastic place to work. We've had uh, conversations on this podcast with other leaders sort of trying to understand what their advice to be would, would be to either the younger selves or a younger colleague now as to how you build a resume to get to the point where you can lead a business like, like you're leading. Looking back at your career, can you identify things that you, you're glad you did that kind of that forged this moment and that kind of shaped you for this role? Uh, and is there anything that can be transferred to, to someone else in, in some sort of lesson? Yeah, I know. I think so. I think there's been a couple of kind of pivotal roles that I took. And I think I also took a couple of chances on things that, you know, maybe weren't the obvious choice. But, you know, I think sometimes when you when you take those roles on, there's a there's a huge opportunity to learn. And I think if you are curious about different things that maybe you haven't done in the past and you really feel that, you know, that gives you an opportunity to develop yourself and see more and learn more and do things differently, 
then those are the things that can really accelerate, I think, your own development. And then they can really play a role in how you can shape your career using those things as your building blocks. So, you know, I can look back on a few of those things for me that uh, I said yes to that some people at the time thought were kind of strange decisions somehow. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot from them. And uh, yeah, they've really helped me get to where I uh, where I am today. So last question about this. I mentioned you're at the same company for your whole career, but obviously J&J is a global organization with many different components. As you moved from Ethicon, you were, as I mentioned, Biosense Webster, you were at the Global Surgery Group, you're now with Seranovis. Is there a common feeling, a common DNA amongst all these organizations that you feel like you're at the same company, or do you sort of move to these different organizations and and really feel as if you've you've changed companies in a way? So this is the, one of the great things about J&J. There's this underlying core values and, you know, driven by, you know, the credo, which I think, you know, most people in in, in our world are very familiar with J&J's credo. And I think that runs through all of the businesses that certainly I've ever been part of. And you can feel it in J&J. It's, it's real. But then I think the really nice thing about our organization is that each of the businesses that you work in, they do have their own DNA as well. Now, mm-hmm. and they all, they all kind of marry up and fit very, very nicely under that umbrella. And as I say, guided by the credo, but they they have their own DNA, they have their own structure, they have their own history, they have their own unique connection with the the customers that they've that they've served and that that they grew up serving. So there there are differences, yes, but it's uh, but there's definitely a set of core values which you know most people at J and J would uh, would would talk to you about. I think. And looking at uh, your move to to Biosense Webster, was that your first uh, post in the, in the United States? Yeah, so I, I um actually before that I, I moved from the UK to Brussels to Belgium. Okay. Um, when I joined Biosense, I was in our European office. So this is the other thing about you know being in a in a in a in a large corporation like J and J, you know, for such a long time. It's not just the I guess the company opportunities or the different sectors that you can work in, but it's also geographically you can have an amazing experience of being able to move around the world and experience different people, different cultures, and you know from a family perspective, I think that's the the thing that me, my wife, and our children have valued the most is this uh, life enriching experience you can have by uh, which has been facilitated through my career, which has been uh, been been amazing. But yeah, so I so I moved to Belgium to join Biosense back in what I think two thousand nine, and then you know I was still with Biosense when I moved to the US. Uh, so you know it's always good if you can transition, if you can try and keep a few of those variables to a minimum. So you're moving from one country to another. If you can stay with the same organization, I think it, it makes the transition even more smooth. And that was certainly the case for me, you know, moving from, from Europe to the US, but still knowing the business and knowing the customer base and, you know, knowing what our mission and what, what our customers were expecting from us, you know, it helps those transitions become uh, that just that little bit easier, I think. Yeah, we had Celine Martin on the podcast a few months ago, and she and others have said that when you move to these I think it was don't change more than one thing, either language or business or specialty, like keep some consistent qualities, but always try to to, to change one aspect of, of your job. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, excellent. So let's talk about the, the move to uh, to Saranovis. You joined in uh, in June of 2019 or you became worldwide president in June 2019. How did that opportunity come your way? So I think, you know, just through the, the, the general J&J networks, you know, the uh, the way that these businesses report, I mean, I think you said you talked to Celine, they all report through to our to the same company group chairman. So, you know, the, the leadership that is responsible for the Biosense Webster business is also responsible for the for the neurovascular business here at Saranovis as well. So I think in in some ways it was a, a natural progression for me to move into that role. 
and we knew the leadership and knew the, the stroke space somewhat because, you know, it's it's strange, you know, Biosense is at one end of the stroke solutions and Serenovus is at the other. So there was already some connectivity between the businesses. So in the end, it was a fairly, you know, easy transition from a from a career development perspective, something of a different learning curve to move into a new space, Tom, and to try and, you know, really learn what's important to a different set of customers, you know, having been with Biosense for for 10 years, I think that was the thing that I wanted to do initially was really spend a lot of time engaging with, you know, with our physicians and engaging with, you know, our, our whole customer base to really understand what they what they were expecting from us. But, uh, you know, the transition internally was fairly straightforward. The learning curve really is on, you know, how you engage externally. I think that's the big thing. Talk, tell us about Serenovus. What is its primary focus? Uh, and, and let's uh, begin to kind of walk through the portfolio products. Yeah, so our primary focus is, uh, you know, patients who suffer from either hemorrhagic stroke or ischemic stroke. So uh, we're we're very very focused on that neurovascular intervention, and we uh, provide technologies, as I say, for both both sides, hemo and uh, and ischemic. The last few years, we've been very very focused on the ischemic stroke portfolio and really looking to develop that. But you know, we're very very aware that to be a you know to be a key player in this space, you know, you have to offer a, a full portfolio of tools and. Make sure that the uh, the physicians we serve have got a full toolkit from Johnson and Johnson to be able to treat the patients that they need to. Let's review the different products in each area. I mean, let's talk about ischemic. What are the new products you're you're rolling out in that space, and what are the challenges with creating a device and, and developing a device that can help people who have suffered an ischemic stroke? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the things that we're extremely proud of is the way we go about our research and development. You know, we have a, a team out in Galway um, when we. Uh, we call it our neurothrombolic initiative, and this is really a, a group of scientists and engineers who who come together, partnering with the physician community, but also academics and in universities across the world to really. We started off really trying to understand what a clot is, you know, why it clots, you know, the different mechanisms, the different types of clot, and then from there you take that learning and that information to be able to understand, well, how does that clot then interact with a device when you're trying to remove the clot. And that was our first kind of real, you know, research and development activity to to really get that understanding. And then, you know, having really developed that and what we have there, I think, is a is a best in class kind of proprietary system for both clot modeling and clot understanding. We then try and take that and apply it to, you know, proprietary models around how we build and replicate the human anatomy so that we understand how these devices react and will react when they're in, you know, in, inside someone's brain. And it's this it's this marrying of these technologies together that uh, that that bring us to the portfolio we have today. And we've got a a best in class what we call a stent retriever. So this mm-hmm. is a you know a stent to be able to you know grab hold of the clot and and remove it from the uh, from the anatomy. We've got a best in class balloon guide catheter, which is designed to be able to occlude the blood vessel just at the time that you are performing the thrombectomy or removing the clot. Because if you think about it, blood is flowing up through to the where the clot is and if you want to try and pull that clot back out, if you can arrest that flow and stop it counteracting what you're trying to do with the removal, then you get a better outcome. So we've got a best-in-class balloon guide catheter to go alongside our our stent retriever. And what we're very excited about coming in the next couple of uh, couple of months is a uh, our next generation aspiration catheter. And you put these hmm. three devices together, and we really think we've got a you know a, a very very uh, strong product offering to allow our you know our physicians that we work with to treat you know, to treat stroke patients to the best way they possibly can. What, what does that last uh, device do? I've already 
What what is it called again? And, and so it's a, it's a it's an it's an aspiration catheter. So this aspiration is catheter. A, a catheter you've got basically the same time that you're you know you can get it to the face of the clot and you can use it in essence really to suck the clot out. Mm-hmm. So you're you're aspirating the uh, through the device to pull the clot through the catheter itself. This is this is the the first in our we've got a whole family of these things coming. Um, this is the first size, and we're starting with the the size that's most commonly used. But we uh, we do plan in the coming months to bring out a full a full range of sizes to treat all different uh, locations in the anatomy. So ranging from the very large vessels right through to the, uh, to the very small vessels in the brain. And all three of these, they're focused on, on ischemic? Yes. Yes. This is all to do with treating ischemic stroke. Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier on the R&D efforts where you try to really understand the makeup of a, of a clot. I'm curious as to, do you have a sense, can you, can you share sort of how that problem was, was looked at? Were you looking at how what a clot consists of or just what its qualities are? I mean, how did they begin to sort of to develop these devices? Seeing the clot as the, as the item that needed to be removed, what was the process there? So I, I think you touched on it. It's, the, it's about the, the clot composition. Yeah. You know, and clots can be, you know, very, very blood cell rich or they can be very, very fibrin rich and they can be everything in between. So it's not that there's just like one classification. This is like a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge scale of different, uh, different combinations of the fibrin and the, and the red blood cells. So we really just want to try and understand, you know, depending on that clot makeup and the characteristics that it has, how it's going to react when you try to remove it. And we we do this on the bench and we've been, you know, extremely lucky to have, to, you know, amazing scientists and engineers to help us sort of engineer these things so we can understand them better. But we've also, I think, tried to, you know, through the clinical research that we've been doing on our devices. So we have a, we've been running a, a registry globally called the Excellent Registry, where we've been collecting data on our, on our devices. And that's helpful for us in terms of being able to demonstrate the efficacy of, of those devices so we can communicate to physicians globally. And that's kind of what conventionally medical device manufacturers do. They do these studies so that they can use this, this data in their promotional material. But one thing that I think that, that we did differently this time was that for all of those patients that were studied in that, in that registry, we were also collecting the blood clot, sending it back and analyzing it. So we hmm. were, we've been modeling things on the bench, but we've been also collecting these things in the real world. So that we can really get a good analog of what's happening out there in a broad patient population. And it's it's this kind of learning and this kind of understanding that really helps guide our future development plans. And it's those insights that we get that really think we can uh, be very, very proud of because they do inform, you know, development and design decisions, uh, you know, every single day in our, uh, in our R&D team. I would imagine no two clots are the same. Or no, am I wrong? No two, no. no two clots are the same. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So... What is it about in, in the ischemic space? How did you create a device that you think is, is a better performer than something pr- produced by another metal device company? What, what are the qualities? Is it the ease of use? I would, I would think perhaps that it might be surgeon specific as to they like the controls of one versus the other, that perhaps the retrieval systems are, are similar. How do you compete in, in this space? Yeah. So it's a very interesting question, Tom. I think, you know, ease of use is always going to be important in in anything we do in med tech, because if things are too complicated, then, you know, they're, they're very unlikely to be adopted. And I think that's particularly true when you talk about ischemic stroke, because these patients are not scheduled, they're not planned, they're emergencies, and, you, and time is of the essence in terms of being able to treat the patient. So you you have to make a system that is simple, easy, intuitive to use. I guess the ultimate thing we're looking for is the ability to remove the clot from the patient at the first attempt. And we call this the first pass rate. And, you know, there's a lot of data that's been shared to show that being able to retrieve the clot at the first attempt 
is actually more impactful than maybe even doing it quicker, but having three or four goes at pulling it out. Hmm. So this was a real revelation for us in the last couple of years as an industry, not just for, for Seranovas, but as an industry. So I think the drive to be able to you know, deliver devices to the clot that can remove the clot at the first attempt, this is what everyone's striving for. And this is how you know, device manufacturers are looking to differentiate themselves from each other. And, and are ischemic strokes, do they account for the largest percentage of strokes that occur or is that the hemorrhagic stroke? So there's more hemorrhagic strokes globally, or well, there's more risk of a hemorrhagic stroke globally, but the, <laughs> many people around the world have aneurysms that, that are undiagnosed and that you know, potentially have the chance to rupture. And that's really what's causing a, you know, a hemorrhagic stroke. But on the ischemic side, this is the area that's been, I think, growing in terms of treatment. You know, there's, but there's still such a long, long way to go here because you know, there's something like 1.7 million you know, ischemic strokes every year, but we're only treating 240,000 of them with a thrombectomy. So there's a huge unmet need here in terms of being able to reach that patient population. And that's been you know, a major goal for, for both industry, the physician community, for policymakers around the world to be able to try and address this unmet need. So those that go untreated, I imagine it's just because they're not in a facility where they can get the care, or is there something else to it? So it's it's a combination of those things, but that's that's one of the major drivers, Thomas. They just they just do not get to, or they're not located close enough to, you know, a thrombectomy center. There's also the the uh, the situation where sometimes they may be close enough but don't get to that thrombectomy center in a timely fashion. So they 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 arrive outside of the time window, which by which we think it's efficacious to treat the patient. So those are the two main reasons. And how do you, as a, as a, or any medical device company, sort of help bridge that gap, get the care to them directly? I mean, you you can only do you can only get your devices into the healthcare center, I imagine. Or are you looking at ways to, I guess, reach reach to people where they where they are? So it's it's through really through the sort of strategic partnerships and advocacy that we have that we can really affect this this side of the uh, of the problem. You know, and we are very lucky in J and J to have an amazing team who work with governments around the world to, I mean, really just try and educate people on the options that are available and try and build those systems of care to allow, you know, in, in our situation, stroke patients to be able to access these life-changing technologies, you know, more and more easily. And, and, and we do that through lobbying to improve the systems of care. We lobby around, you know, providing access to these life-saving treatments. And also we've been pretty active of late trying to shine a light on the fact that there are major sort of equity challenges in terms of different stratas of the population who don't receive the care because of their socioeconomic status, maybe because of their race. So we've been trying to shine a light on those things as well through our government affairs you know, teams around the world. Interesting. So we talked about ischemic stroke. That's the blood clot in the artery headed to the brain. Hemorrhagic stroke is the rupture of the vessel in the brain. What products do you have on the hemorrhagic side? And, and is that a portfolio that's, that's more stable or are you looking to expand that one as well? So, so that's an area that we're looking to expand. Um, okay. mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, we have a we have a next generation coil device which is going to be uh, launching in the U.S. market uh, very soon. We're very excited about that. You know, coils have been around in the market for you know a long, long time, and you know, coils are for for those lay people listening to the podcast here. These are just very you know, tiny, uh, tiny metal coils that you sort of feed into the aneurysm to give some structure for the blood to clot around it and to stop flow going into the aneurysm, which would stop it from, from growing and then potentially from bursting. That treatment option has been around for a long, long time, but we've developed a very, very nice new delivery system for the coils, which is very, very soft and, uh, and very, very reliable. And when we talk about softness, this allows really the, you know, our physicians to be able to 
maintain the position of the catheter as they're deploying these coils into the aneurysm. There's nothing more frustrating than getting to the place you want to be to provide treatment to the patient, only for the catheters to move, which they do frequently. So this has been a you know a, a big complaint of uh, uh, physicians, and we've uh, we've got a nice new device which really addresses that problem. So we're excited about that coming, and then into the future, you know, we 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 continue to look at where we can add into the uh, the portfolio on the hemorrhagic side because, uh, as I say, there's still a, a lot of unmet need there in in terms of uh, what our physicians are asking us to continue to develop. Is the R and D work being done on the hemorrhagic side? Is it the same site where you, we were talking about ischemic stroke, and are they looking at the problem similarly? So, so, so we do. Yes, we do. We we have our we have two R and D sites. We have one in Galway and Ireland, which okay. uh, historically have been more focused on ischemic stroke, and then our our R and D site in Miami in the US, which had been traditionally more focused on the hemorrhagic side. Oh, interesting. We've been really just trying to sort of blend those two things and take some of the learnings that we've had you know, on some of the stroke science piece and try and push those back over into the hemorrhagic side. We've only really had that program in place now for about sort of eight or nine months, but we, uh, we, we believe it's going to give us a lot of, uh, a lot of nice insight in terms of uh, product development, just like it did for the ischemic side. What is the, the supply of ideas like in this space? I understand that neurovascular space, there's a lot of people who uh, only come up with a lot of iterations or, 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 or improvements to, to products and, and they're not shy about sharing those with companies. First of all, I think our customer base or the physicians that we that we work with and we partner with they are an incredibly uh creative group of uh of of doctors and i think that stems from the fact that they are in these very very stressful situations where as i said before you know time is of the essence so they tend to be very very creative with the tools that they have and i think is this is that you know generates a lot of new ideas as uh as to what devices could be and what they could do into the future one of the strengths, I think, of our business is the, is the connections that we have with physicians all around the world. We know we run, you know, regular kind of brainstorming events with them to try and understand what ideas they might have, what you know treatment options they would like to see in the future, and uh, it's that kind of like pairing of the of the physician community with the engineering community and with our scientists that really I think is a. Uh, it's what excites me about the job that I have to do. It's uh, it's that interface which is so unique and. Uh, it's not always such a collaboration in medtech, and I think in neuro, it's uh, it's really a, a really strong partnership and something that I think both we on the industry side enjoy, but I know from the physicians that I have the privilege to interact with and work with and talk to, you know, they also really value that partnership because we're the people that can bring those ideas to life, and uh, and that's one of the joys of being in the space that we're in. Has that relationship uh, been impacted by COVID and 2020? A lot of Hospitals, their operations have changed. Things have become a little more frenzied. But I imagine this is a critical but somewhat stable sort of a relationship between these doctors and, and medical device providers like JJ. Yeah, I mean, I think the relationship didn't really change much through the yeah. pandemic. You know, we, we all learned to move to a Zoom Zoom world, and in, and, in, and in fact, in many ways, I think it's made us you know even more efficient. We used to rely very much on being able to get together face to face, and increasingly, that's pretty hard to do to, to get. You know, ten people in a room somewhere in the world coordinate all those calendars. It's not always very easy, but you know, we still believe the, in the value of getting people together. But you know, those those other touch points that are you know much much more easy now, and that everyone's familiar with these kind of remote ways of working. I think that's probably in some ways being able to speed up. You know, some of that the, the feedback loop, if you like. You know, the initial ideation and things. It's often, I think, it's always done better face to face. But mm -hmm. you know, how you continue to iterate and how you continue to be able to to move those programs forward. You know, I think the new ways of working have just enhanced that. Great. And final question, just look, looking forward, without giving away any sort of state secrets, uh, 
what is going to change stroke treatment in the future? Are, are, we've got the coils, we've got the clot removal devices. Those have been used for, for a time. Do you see some sort of leapfrogging advancement in either of those technologies? Do you see some kind of advancement maybe in 3D imagery that's coming that's going to help us treat strokes better? What, what's coming down the pike that you think might change the space? So I think we're going to see you know, continued advancement in technologies for ischemic stroke, particularly around the the aspiration devices. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear me say that. I think that's a trend that we're already seeing, you know, happening today, Tom. But there's there's going to be a I think some significant advancements in that space over the next sort of two to three years. Why is that superior uh, the aspiration? Well, it, it's not necessarily that it's aspir- it's it's superior today, but I think you know some of the different sizes of devices that we're able to reach the clot locations is going to be able to allow us to more easily evacuate the clot from that from that space gotcha you know potentially different ways of affecting uh, the aspiration power is also going to be part of this as well so i think there's some interesting stuff there to come in ischemic stroke i also think there's going to be some i think very interesting innovation coming around you know when we look at you know we're very used to in our space accessing the arterial system and that's where we've been most comfortable but the whole venous system of the brain is pretty much unexplored at this point and i think that's going to be a next frontier for people in the neurovascular space. So maybe not necessarily directly, you know, purely at stroke, but learning and understanding where we can go in the venous system and what access that might give us to different parts of the brain. And then, you know, different things that we might be able to treat because we can get to different places. I think that's going to be an evolving, uh, an evolving part of our world in the next uh, probably five years or so. And that's probably something that's uh, worth keeping an eye on, I think. Wow. What what has kept us uh, uh, or you out of out of the Venus space or everyone out of the Venus space is just size size of vessel or no? I think honestly, it's just been certainly from a neurovascular perspective. There's been so much to do in stroke that we've been really focused <laughs> around that, and I think right. now, you know, people are feeling you know we're getting to a point where, from a from a procedure perspective, you know, we're into that kind of like, you know, yes, there's still a lot of unmet need, but there's going to be incremental benefit. You know, whereas the big step change came, you know, a few years ago, I think uh, now people are starting to think, okay, so, okay, we, we probably look, need to look at systems of care and how do we get patients into hospitals faster and, and quickly. That's going to continue to grow the the number of patients who can receive the treatment. But I think people are now starting to think, okay, now we have this technology that can get us to these parts of the brain arterially. What could we do if we could go through the venous system as well? So I think there's going to be some interesting advancements there as well. Amazing. All right. Well, it's always an interesting space to learn about. And uh, it seems like it changes every time I talk to someone in this space. And, <laughs> and uh, thanks for, for taking the time for sharing your story and joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Tom. Nice to talk to you. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks again to T Connectivity's Medical Business Unit for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks again to the team at the Mullings Group. 160 Studios and Dragonfly Stories for having me down so I could record those interviews with Jeff Alvarez and Paul Grand. Once again, uh, stay tuned. We'll have interviews with Joe Mullings and Holly Scott of the Mullings Group uh, in next week's podcast episode, but you can also find those on LinkedIn, the full video form. And uh, don't forget, join us at Device Talks Boston on May 10th and 11th. You can use the code DTWEEKLY25 when you register to save 25% off the price of registration. Go to devicetalks.com to register for that, to register for our upcoming summer season of Device Talks Tuesdays. That'll start at the end of May. And of course, you can find our entire Device Talks podcast network selection at devicetalks.com as well. But you really should subscribe 
You can subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network on any major podcast platform. You can also subscribe to Medtronic Talks. So Device Talks Podcast Network gets you Device Talks Weekly. It gets you Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, and soon Abbott Talks. Medtronic Talks has its own channel. Make sure you subscribe to that as well. And also, uh, you have another subscription suggestion for you. Check out Mass Devices Fast Five podcast. It'll get you up to date on all the big med tech news every morning, in and out, five to 10 minutes. Boom, you'll know what's going on. You'll know what to talk about. You'll know what folks are talking about. Go to any major podcast player and uh, check out Mass Devices Fast Five. You'll find it, subscribe to it, and you will uh, never be, uh, you'll always be up to date on medical device news. All right, well, that's a wrap. Once again, join us at Device Talks Boston. Go to devicetalks.com to register. Thank you, T Connectivity, for sponsoring. Thanks, uh, the Mullings Group, for their great work with these interviews. Thanks, Paul Grand and Jeff Alvarez for making yourselves available. And thank you, of course, for listening. Join us next week on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Mm-hmm.